Hello. I'm here talking to Kendall. I'm here talking to Annie, and today we're talking about the twisted tale of Todd Kolhep. Content warnings are for sexual assault and a bunch of red herrings. Come join us on Patreon. We have a general support tier as well as a tier that gets you three bonus episodes a month. You can follow us on Instagram at Tell No One Podcast or send us an email at tellnoonepod at gmail.com. Sources are in the show notes. Everything's alleged, but this is definitely Tell No One. Enjoy. Okay. We're at a Supermike Motorsports, a motorcycle dealership in Chesney, South Carolina. Scott Ponder owned the store and worked there with his friend, Brian Lucas. It was kind of like a local hangout for like motorcycle enthusiasts in the area. Kind of like they'd come in, chat. It was like a social place. Really popular. Mm -hmm. Oh, I wrote the cheers of motorsports. Everybody knows your name. name. (laughs) (laughs) So on November 6, 2003, a close friend of Brian and Scott, um, a close friend of Brian and Scott and a regular customer of the shop head over there heads over there that night to collect tickets for a thing they're going to the next day. He called the shop at 2.30 p.m. to give them a heads up that he was coming over, and Scott's mother, Beverly, answered. She did some bookkeeping for the shop, and so she's like, yeah, come on down. We're all here. Come yeah. right down. So around 3 p.m., he arrives and parks in the parking lot, and he notices, before he gets out of his car, he notices a person laying on the ground, propping the front door of the shop open. It was Brian. He gets out of his car and notices someone laying under the front of the car parked next to him. And that is Scott. And there's like pools of blood around them. The glass of the front door is shattered. And so he runs into the store and goes to the counter and calls 911 with a store phone. He sees another body laying on the floor outside the showroom. And that's Beverly, Scott's mother. Mm. Okay, between the time he called, can I come down? He notices it. And now they've been oh, yeah. all killed? In in a half hour okay. before he got there, they've all been killed. He's on the phone with 911 and he says, apparently everyone's been shot up here. Everyone's <laughs> laying down in a pool of blood. His mother's been shot. The mechanic's been shot. So there's also a mechanic who's always there at that time, but he hasn't seen him yet. He's just assuming that he's shot because everyone is. But people do find that a little bit suspicious of like, how did you know he was shot if you hadn't seen him yet? Good guess. It was a good guess on my part. Okay. So yeah, the the mechanic is Chris Sherbert. Uh, He was also always working at this time. So yeah, Bryant or this guy just assumed he would also be shot. Mm-hmm. So the operator, or maybe even like he didn't know, he couldn't quite identify each male body. And yeah, he's just like, well, th- three people have been shot. Probably the mom, the owner, and the mechanic. You probably know? everyone who was here. Yeah. Um, the operator tells him to leave the store and wait outside, which he does. I can't believe you went in. They also think that's weird because like you had a cell phone. Why did you go in? I mean, I'm stunned. Yeah, I'm not really in my right mind. Yeah. What year are we in? 2003. Yeah, your your phone, you're not married to it the way you are now. Right. Like, I'm sure you're, at the time, you're used to using landlines. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I would probably do this. I would, who the fuck knows? Who, I don't know. And I don't know what it would feel like to be a man in the world. Yeah. Not living with the the amount of fear I have. Like, yeah. I'm, he might have, I think men feel more emboldened to. Just walk right in. Yeah. Yeah. Let me go in and figure out what is going on here. Shock is crazy. Like, you will do crazy shit. Mm. Um, 
So first responders arrive and confirm that Beverly, Brian, and Scott are all dead. And they also find Chris Sherbert dead, the mechanic, slumped over a motorcycle in the garage that he was working on. So all of them were shot multiple times with a nine millimeter pistol. And all of them were shot at least once through the forehead, like to make sure they were killed. Okay. Like shot, shot, and then come up again and shoot you make sure. Yes. Oh. 18 shell casings were recovered from the scene. There were no fingerprints or palm prints in the store, no DNA. There was a bill of sale, like partially filled out for a black Suzuki motorcycle. Scott was in the process of writing it when the shootings began. It didn't include a name or phone number or anything. And the bill of sale was for the same motorcycle that Chris was working on when he was shot. So they think whoever was buying this is the shooter. Mm Mm-hmm. Their theory is that the shooter left the store after arranging to the bu- to buy the bike. Mm. And so Scott's writing up the bill of sale and the mechanic is like doing some final touches on it and he'll deliver it to him later. Yeah. So the killer leaves, sneaks in the garage via the back door, shoots Chris while he's distracted, heads through the showroom, shoots Beverly, Scott and Brian. Scott and Brian flee. Yeah. Um, but he shoots them down. And that would be why they're found out, like, in the parking lot. Yeah. Scott made it all the way to the parking lot. Brian was shot in the doorway. And, like, Beverly was, like, in the showroom showroom area. Yeah. This took place around 2.45 p.m. because the guy had called around 2.30 and spoken to Beverly. And by the time he arrived 30 minutes later, they were all dead. Mm -hmm. There were barely any witnesses. This happened at 2.45 in the afternoon on a weekday. Like, there weren't a lot of people hanging around. I can't believe nobody in the area saw anything or heard no not weird yeah um so six months earlier there was a robbery and triple homicide at a bank in a town 30 miles away so they're thinking could this be related because they were also killed like execution style and that case was still unsolved but the superbike store was not robbed there was an envelope full of cash sitting on the counter that was left behind so they're like was this personal kind of had to be right kind of had to be So Scott opened the store in January 2001. He hired his best friend Brian soon after that. They became the largest Suzuki dealership in the area. And Scott used the internet, which is like still new, to sell bikes online, which is like a new phenomenon. So Mm -hmm. he's like making a lot of money. They made more than a million dollars in sales their first year and they quickly grow. So they're like, is this like a business competitor, a disgruntled customer? Like, what is this? Like, who would have a vendetta? Yeah, like it had to be a personal thing because they didn't take the money. Yeah. But the way they did it did not feel very personal. Yeah. It felt very systematic. Yeah. Not like we got in a fight, passion. Right. It was like, I want you eliminated. I came here to eliminate four people. Why though? Or everybody here today. Everybody here today? (laughs) So at first the police are focused on the guy who found them um, because he had a cell phone but walked into the store to call 911. We talked about this. Um... He took a polygraph and was fingerprinted and was ruled out pretty immediately. Yeah. The killer, um, he wouldn't have had to find them. Right. Like anybody, the, midday, just leave. an operating like, shop, people would have walked in in an hour or two. Right. He wouldn't have to find them himself. Yeah. Yeah. And you wouldn't think he would want to. Yeah. So police also learn that Scott did not have a relationship with his biological father, William Ponder. In 1993, William went out partying one night and is never seen again. Just disappears. 
And shortly before the murder, Scott starts becoming interested in trying to find what happened to his dad. So they're like, was he silenced? Good question. So it's something to think about. They also find that Scott had tried to make a call on his cell phone during the attack, and he was just able to make out 333. So they think he was trying to call his third speed dial, which is his wife, Melissa. Oh, I know. Melissa is seven weeks pregnant with their first child, and they went to their first prenatal appointment two days before. So Melissa gives birth to her son, Scott Jr., who they call Scotty, or she calls Scotty. Seven months later, the case is still not resolved. So investigators meet up with her to catch her up on the progress on the case. She brings Scotty with her um, and changes his diaper while she's there. And after she leaves, they collect the diaper from the trash because they had gotten a tip that Scott was infertile. And so they do a DNA sample from the baby's diaper and compare it to Scott's DNA taken from the crime scene. And it does not match. So Melissa was asked to come in and leave Scotty at home. They inform her that her son's DNA does not match his purported father's DNA. Okay. Not a crime. Not a crime. She tells them this is not possible and offers to have his DNA tested again, and they do it again. Still not a match. But they do find a familiar link with the baby, and testing confirmed that Brian Lucas's DNA matched Scotty the baby. The other guy killed that day? His best friend. Okay. Okay. So Brian was married and had two sons, um, but his mother suspected he wasn't happy in his marriage and he was looking at houses to move into without his wife at the time he was murdered. So we're wondering, were Brian and Melissa having an affair? I don't know. Do we feel like she is being genuine and being like, no, 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 you're, it, it couldn't be anybody but my, yeah, but my husband. Yeah. Okay. Does this have anything to do with the murders? She denies all of this. So investigators do more DNA tests and find out that Beverly wasn't Scott's biological mother. So they match her DNA to Brian. And they're like, wait a minute. They flipped them. Everybody involved, you're an idiot. So what happened? Scott and Brian's DNA samples were mixed up and mislabeled at At the the lab. lab. Oh, my God. So Melissa is cleared. But after but she has to move away because some people in the community always have a weird suspicion of her. Okay. So, we got a guy named Keith. He was a regular customer at the bike store, and on the day of the murders, he planned to stop by the store to make a payment on a go-kart he bought for his four-year-old son. He goes in, takes his son with him. They get there around 2 p.m. They spend about 30 to 45 minutes wandering around the store, looking at the new bikes, and there's only one other customer in there with them. So the other customer was a white male between 25 and 40, six feet tall, 170 to 200 pounds, dark hair, small eyes, wearing jeans and a leather jacket, even though it was really hot out, um, and was admiring a black Suzuki motorcycle. Okay. So Scott approaches him and tells him, like, this is a good beginner's bike that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So they leave a few minutes later. The customer is still talking to Scott. And by the time Keith gets home, reports about the murder was on the news Mm. and he's like i just left there with my four-year-old son so keith tells the detectives what he saw and helps them create a composite sketch but he didn't think that the sketch captured the man really well he's like this is shit (laughs) um so whoever drew that fuck you get a new job (laughs) (laughs) 
So they get no leads. Um, America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries cover the case, but it goes cold. I didn't know. I On MFM the other night, they were like, after a year, they yeah. call it cold. Yeah. Not long. Not long. So John Douglas, famous FBI profiler, was brought in to create a profile. Um, he says that the entire attack was probably finished in 45 seconds. Um, this God. is like, yeah, isn't that fucking terrifying? Yeah. <laughs> um, he was mission oriented and it wasn't like a sexual fantasy. It was revenge or retaliation motivated. Okay. So by 2012, this is nine years later, they update the sketch and Keith is like, that's a little better. <laughs> <laughs> um, by 2013, there were over 700 leads that led nowhere. I don't know. I feel like we're in Kill Bill. Like, were you employed by anybody who wanted them dead? Who sent you? (laughs) Very who sent you. (laughs) We're switching it up. It's September 2016. And 32-year-old Charlie Carver has not been responding to his mother's texts. This was not typical for him. His father also hadn't heard from him. He and his girlfriend, Kala. It's K-A-L-A. Kala. 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 He and his girlfriend, Calla Brown, also failed to show up to a friend's dinner. And they were last heard from on August 31st. Their phones are going straight to voicemail. Um, their families check their apartment and Calla's car was there, but Charlie's was gone. Um, they see that they're, they have clothing and their medications and glasses are still in the apartment. And Calla's dog was alone with no food or water. And she'd clearly been there for days. Mm. Um, and they're like she would never leave without like arranging something for her dog like she loved her dog Mm -hmm. so they do file missing persons reports but law enforcement says there's not much we can do you know they're adults they have the right to go missing (laughs) yeah i have the right to but nobody wants to yeah their families start looking themselves like i guess i have to do this now no one's coming yeah Uh, So, like, did they get in a car accident? They're searching, like, ravines and creek beds for, like, their dead bodies. I would think that. Like, if they they were driving together in one car. They're in a ditch. Mm -hmm. They're they're making Facebook groups. They're putting up flyers. They're doing the whole thing. And police eventually come around to searching for them. So, a month goes by. And October 1st, new posts start showing up on Charlie's Facebook page. No. That are, like, clearly not from him. But it's also, it's, like, retroactively logging major life events fucking weird like how like posted that july first 2016 he and calla discovered they were pregnant with a girl but they're not around they're not around (laughs) august 1st they bought a house september 1st they got married Mm. so weird other posts that like just don't sound like him like weird memes Um, ew yeah one post says i wonder if i said hello how many people would say it back let's try it hello Ew. The lyrics to Hotel California. No. (laughs) An old person has it. Okay. Hold on. We have a lead. (laughs) (laughs) And and it was the lyric of like, you can never leave. You can check out anytime you want. You can never leave. Terrifying. Yeah. They're 45 to 50. You might as well have written, welcome to the jungle. You're going to (laughs) die. Oh, my mom has it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's my mom posting. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Some people have their theories because when Charlie met Kala, 
I'm sorry if that's not your name. He was going through a divorce and his wife, Nicole, was not happy about it or his relationship with Kala. She stalks them a lot. And one day, Charlie came home to his apartment to find Nicole just sitting inside. <sighs> On August 31st, their last known like day of contacting anyone. Day of life. Nicole posted, rest in peace, my beloved husband on facebook okay also people notice that the person using charlie's facebook account makes similar spelling and grammar mistakes that nicole does humiliating beverly you fucking idiot nicole also texts charlie's mother your son never wants to see you again he contacted me they're at the beach oh no no so an investigator calls at&t the phone company to request Mm. to request access to charlie's cell phone data to see where it last pinged but when the at&t rep asked the investigator to spell their name and confirm their badge number they were unable to oh my god (laughs) so the representative puts them on hold and calls the police and they confirm this is not a real call and begin to trace it and it was made by nicole charlie's ex-wife Oh, my God. You're calling pretending. Hi, I'm from... Hey, this is Detective (laughs) Shermerhorner. Detective (laughs) Shermerhorner. First name I could think of. Not a name. (laughs) (laughs) It could have been like Smith. Yeah. Okay. So she was arrested three days later for impersonating a police officer. Yeah, you fully... Even that alone, you you can't fucking do that. You can't do that. But there's no evidence connecting her to the disappearance. She's just separately crazy on her own. Wow. So the real investigators get the cell phone data. August 31st, both phones pinged a tower in Spartanburg County. Kala's phone kept connecting until September 2nd. Um, This tower where it pinged was nearby a 95-acre plot of land. And they had just gotten a tip that Kala was buried on a 100-acre plot of land. So they're like, is this the plot of land? Mm. They fly a helicopter over the property and see no sign of them or Charlie's white Pontiac Grand Prix. I had a white Pontiac Grand Prix. Yeah, you did. Drove it into the ground. Drove it right into the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it got smashed up, towed right out of here. Got $200 for it. November 3rd, law enforcement go to this property with a warrant. Um, So it's like a big uh, fucking piece of land surrounded by a fence. And there's like a bunch of little like half buildings around. It's like a junkyard kind of. Yeah. Mm. So they have to drive along a long path to get in there. Mm -hmm. And while they're driving this route, they notice a white car in a ravine smeared with brown paint and covered in leaves and debris to hide it being, to a, white hide car. It being a white car okay they identify it as charlie's pontiac mm-hmm. so they search the other buildings on the property no one's there no one is like living there there's no one there but on the walls of one of the rooms in a building were heavy chains with padlocks no <laughs> sorry but no <laughs> yeah <laughs> No. Fucking true detective out there. So they find on the property a very large, like, shipping container. No, fuck you, Kendall. Do you know what a shipping container is? I do. Yeah, I do. Girls. <laughs> so it's like those long things that you see on, like, pictures of a of a, of a port. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that they're craning up into the ship. Exactly. That's what that is. Yeah. 
Why would the fuck would that be on land? Right. And why would it have five heavy padlocks locking it up? Are they in there? No. So they begin trying to sledgehammer the locks off. Mm-hmm. It's not working. But then one of them calls out to stop because they could hear a banging. They knock and they get a knock in response. And they hear someone say, help me get out of here. Mm, yeah. I'm trying. So they use a circular saw and cut through the padlocks. So they enter the shipping container. And towards the back of the container was a woman sitting on a mattress. Oh, my God. Her wrists are handcuffs. One of her ankles was cuffed to a chain that was attached to the wall. Her neck had a padlock chain on it, which was also attached to the wall. And it's Calibron. I mean, can we take a moment for... You are having the female nightmare. Yeah, you're, you're being in kept it. captive in a shipping container. Get with it. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up, girlfriend. It, baby, it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like the terror of <laughs> it can really happen, huh? Like not only am I like, I'm not dead. I'm alive. <laughs> not only am I not dead, I'm alive. <laughs> But but really, um, I'd rather be dead. Obviously, yeah. Like, the terror of Dude, men are really doing that. They're really doing that. We gotta. They're doing it, it in out. 2016. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all like caught on like body cam, like audio. Like mm. you can hear her and like. Okay, you know what though? I don't know why, but I love to hear. I love the 911 call. I love body cam. But for, I don't know why for her, for that. Yeah. I feel a little bit too like, no, I don't, I don't want to hear it. Like, yeah. Too awful to me. We won't be listening. Yeah. It's not like, yeah. Okay. So they unchain her and ask her if she knows where her boyfriend Charlie is. Todd Colehep. He shot Charlie three times in the chest, wrapped him in a blue tarp, put him in the bucket of a tractor, locked me down here, and I've never seen him again. So Todd Colehep is the owner of this property. Mm. So Kala says that she met Todd through friends in 2011. We know him. She knows him. She started cleaning some of his properties for him, like as a job. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And on August 31st, her and Charlie drove to this property after Todd offered to pay them to clear some brush. Mm -hmm. When they arrived, he gave them instructions and handed them hedge clippers. But he like walks away for a second and returns holding a gun. He shoots and kills Charlie without saying anything. He handcuffs Kala, apologizes about killing Charlie, but had to let her know, quote, he was serious. He leads her to the storage container where she was kept for two months, changed the wall almost all of the time. He would visit her a few times every day and bring her to his apartment that he had on the land. He would. God, okay. We're walking her out of the container. Oh, yeah. Up to the up to your home. Yep. He has a separate home and also a little apartment on the land. If anybody had any had been looking at that land at all, they'd have watched him get a girl out of a shipping container home and back a few times a day. So isolated. There's no one out there. Fucking terrifying. He would beat her and sexually assault her, bring her back to the container. He said he, quote, didn't believe in rape. So he didn't physically force her. But she said. She knew she had no choice. Duh. I mean, it wasn't like, yeah. Do you think you're a good guy in your right. head? I don't know what the fuck he's on about. Yeah, okay. So sometimes he would let her walk around the property, go on little walks, um, and would point out Charlie's grave and an empty grave next to it. Mm-hmm. 
He said, don't worry, one day Stockholm Syndrome will kick in and you'll love this. I'll make a special soundproofed home for you. Even when I love it, you won't, I have to be soundproofed? Then I won't, am I loving it? He would also brag to her that he was a serial killer um, with victims in the high two digits and planned to kill more. So let's talk about Todd. Todd Kolhep was born on March 7th, 1971 in Florida and was raised in South Carolina and Georgia. His parents divorced when he was two years old. His mother got custody and married another man the following year. So quickly, his mother noticed that he could not play with other children. He was described as a troublesome child. And in nursery school, he was known to be aggressive toward other children and would destroy their property. At the age of nine, when he started undergoing counseling, Todd was described as being explosive and preoccupied with sexual content. At nine? At nine. He also displayed cruelty to animals, um, shooting a dog with a BB gun and killing his goldfish by pouring Clorox bleach into the bowl. Brutal. Todd's father later said that the only emotion his son was capable of was anger and madness. So Todd spent three and a half months in a Georgia psychiatric hospital as an inpatient because of his inability to get along with other children. It was that bad. Mm. So eventually in 1983, he was sent to live with his biological father in Arizona after his mother and stepfather separated. He took his father's last name and began working a number of local jobs. He also inherited his father's hobby of collecting weapons and was taught by him to, quote, blow things up and make bombs. You're a violent, antisocial kid. You're you're bonding with him over weaponry. He loves it. What? My boy loves it. (laughs) (laughs) Despite this, their relationship. No, didn't get better. Got worse. (laughs) Despite this, their relationship deteriorated. Hell yeah. Due to his father's absence with a number of girlfriends. And Todd repeatedly expressed a desire to return to his mother though she reportedly made excuses to extend his stay. I'd be afraid of him. I'd be like, you don't know me. Change my name. Change my number. (laughs) I'd be afraid. Um, On November 25th, 1986, 14-year-old Christy Granado was at her home babysitting her younger siblings, who were both sleeping. The doorbell rings. It's 15-year-old Todd Kolhep. He tells her that... Do they know each other? I think they went to school together. Okay. And he tells her that another boy that she had a crush on was around the corner and wanted to talk to her. She says no and shuts the door. He wouldn't leave. So he goes around to the back and says, just come out. So she goes outside. He pulls out a gun and holds to her head. He forces her into an alley behind the houses. She grabs, she's like, fuck this. Fuck you, Todd. So she grabs the barrel of the gun, but he pulls the trigger and it misses it misfires but would have shot her in the head if it had not so she's like you're crazy means business <laughs> yeah <laughs> so she follows him to his house his dad is on a business trip he binds her hands with a rope and duct tapes her mouth and rapes her so her brother wakes up and is like where's my sister and he calls 911 good boy the police arrive and she shows up at the back door um todd had seen the police lights because they're like neighbors Mm -hmm. and she begged to leave saying she would tell them they were out looking for a missing dog together he says okay but if you tell them what really happened i'll murder your whole family roger that so at first with the police she keeps the missing dog story 
but they can God. clearly see something horrible is happening. She is like shaken. They're like, something happened to you. I can't even imagine how scared. Like, poor little girl. Like you're 15. You're a fucking child. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they can clearly see that something horrible just happened. And they're like, sis, what really happened? So she tells the truth and they immediately go to his house and arrest him. And he just says, I just need to know how much time I'm getting for this. <laughs> <laughs> so he is charged as an adult. Uh, so he agrees to plead guilty to kidnapping if they drop the rape charges. No. His mother writes a letter to the judge for leniency. Quote, they don't stop to think that he walked the girl home. Does that <gasps> sound like a dangerous criminal? Girly. They're going to get wrong. you. <laughs> wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no. So he was sentenced to 15 years in prison and had to register as a sex offender. So there's some rape part of it because sex offender. Okay. According to court records, he was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and was noted as having an above average IQ of 118. In August 2001, he was released from prison at the age of 30 and moves to South Carolina. Okay. In jail from 15 15 to to 30. Yeah. An adult jail. So during his imprisonment, he attended and graduated from Central Arizona College with a bachelor's degree in computer science. Um, From January 2002 to November 2003, he worked as a graphic designer for a company in Spartanburg, and he began studying at Greenville Technical College in 2003. He transferred to the University of South Carolina Upstate the following year and graduated in 2008 with a bachelor's of science degree in business administration and marketing. What the fuck? Yeah. So despite being registered as a sex offender, he was able to get his real estate license on June 30th, 2000 on June 30th, 2006 after lying about the felony charge on his application. So it, they didn't do a Corey check, nothing. Well, he wrote that he had been convicted of this felony, but he like wrote an addendum saying I had a fight with my girlfriend and l- we left together to find a missing dog. But because I had a gun on me, they charged me with kidnapping it was just a misunderstanding and they believe him and they believe him don't believe men so from this he built a real estate firm that had a dozen agents working for him and in may 2014 he purchases nearly 100 acres of land this is the land located in an area nine miles from the community of moore for three hundred thousand dollars He then created a chain link fence surrounding the entire property, which cost $80,000. He's he's setting it up. He knows what he wants to use it for. Yeah. A customer who sold her home to Todd remembered him as extremely outgoing and professional, but noted that he would often talk about his firearms and sometimes subtly used sexual innuendos during their conversations. Conversely, a woman who assisted one of Todd's employees described him as angry and condescending towards her partner. Um, And a banker who worked with Todd said he often watched pornographic videos at work. Ew. If you're doing that, you might as well like piss on me. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I can do that. Yeah. To me, that is so like power. I I dare you to say something. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I know I'm making you so uncomfortable and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. So like piss on me. Yeah. (laughs) So he also frequented a Waffle House restaurant where his behavior disturbed the waitresses so much that the male cook had to start taking his orders. God damn it. You can't be around any women. No. So or like you can't keep your behavior in check in any environment. No, he's an animal. Yeah, you're not a human being. No. 
Um, so they're able to like find his Amazon account and they find that he posted reviews for padlocks, tactical <laughs> gear, targets, knives, gun accessories, and he often wrote reviews at ver- um various times in 2014, 2015, and 2016. Blah blah blah. In one review about a padlock, the user wrote, Solid locks, have five on a shipping container. Won't stop them, but sure will slow them down so they're too old to care. On a review of a knife posted on September 13th, 2014, he said, haven't stabbed anyone yet, yet, but I am keeping the dream alive. And when I do, it will be with a quality tool like this. I'm begging for help. I'm (laughs) screaming for help. Please come let me out. (laughs) On one review posted in January 2015 for another set of padlocks, the user said, now my locks have locks. This place is Hotel California now. Okay, here we go. There we go. So the police go to his... So, okay, they find her in the shipping container. They're like, "Um, we're going to have to talk to you. (laughs) So they go to his house house. Mm. So they... Okay, actually, I'm wrong. So they go to... So we have a team going to his property where she's found. And we have a team going to his house simultaneously uh the radio on the the radio call exactly they are talking to him while they get a call that they found a woman in his shipping container and he can hear it and he's right there oh my god and he says what excuse me he says excuse me i want an attorney so they continue to search the property and they find charlie's body in a shallow grave after they find it todd agrees to make a full confession but he wants to talk to his mother um, and he wants to transfer some of his money to the daughter of a friend of his for her college tuition. So he says that he targeted Kala and Charlie because he was very angry with Kala. Whatever. And he said the empty grave was intended for her. Mm. Quote, she came really close. She has no idea. Fuck off. He the loves to be creepy. That? Yeah. yeah he like, loves it. You don't even know, but you almost died that day. I spared her many times. So he agrees to take them to areas on his property where he had buried two more bodies. They were husband and wife Johnny Joe Coxie, 29, and Megan Lee McGraw Coxie, 26, residents of Spartanburg who were reported missing on December 22nd, 2015. They had a son together. Mm. Todd met Megan at the Waffle House. She was a waitress at the Waffle House. Fuck off. Uh, He offered her money to clean his property. He tells police that when her and Johnny came to his property to clean up, Johnny tried to jump him. Uh Uh-huh. Liar. And like, you know that he thought that she would come alone. Yep. And she brought her her boyfriend. So he shoots him in the chest in self-defense. Uh-huh. But then he panics because he's a convicted felon whatever you're right a felon convicted felon he panics he panics because he's a convicted felon and he's not allowed to have guns so he the solution to that is to put megan in the shipping container he had her in there too yep he Fuck. In, he insists that he never sexually assaulted her but that's the dumbest shit i've ever heard mm. So after five or six days, he tells Megan that he would give her $4,000 if she would just drive away and never speak of this again. She agrees to the plan. But when he checks on her the next day, she tried to burn down the shipping container. 
this is his story yeah it's you're stupid. making it no fully made up so he shoots her in the back of the head yeah fully made up you were done with her yeah so you shot her and you shot her and he says the similarities between the two couple attacks just coincidence this is not my thing he says this property was supposed to be my sanctuary not my killing field <laughs> it just fucking happened that way well for you they're one and the same brother oh my god they're one and the same <laughs> <laughs> also so we're talking to kayla st- we're talking to Kala still she's telling him she's telling us all that he was bragging about and she says oh he also told me that a few years back he walked into a bike shop and shot four people okay in 2003, when the murders at the bike shop happened, he was out of prison for two years. He had purchased a motorcycle from Superbike Motorsports. Um, he realized it wasn't a good fit for an inexperienced rider. Mm-hmm. And it was soon stolen from his apartment complex. So he gets an insurance payout and goes to buy another bike from them. But when he was there, he spoke to Brian, who said, great, now we'll have another to go pick up. Which Todd took to mean that they stole the bike from him. No, you wanted to be violent you, and you... Yeah. My like, thought is, is that they might have teased him about being inexperienced. And he cracked. cracked in a major way. Okay, yeah. That's what I think happened. So he's looking at the bikes and he eavesdrops on Scott and Brian, quote, talking trash about like other customers and other people or whatever. Okay. Mind your business. Have you ever worked in retail? Of any any kind of retail? We gotta make the hours pass. If I interact with anyone ever, I've texted Kendall my opinion of them. <laughs> Duh! Like, it's called living. <laughs> so he decides to buy a pistol and go back to the store. He inspects the bikes and scopes at the store to make sure that everyone he wants to kill is there. <laughs> Brian, Scott, and maybe the mechanic. But no one he doesn't want to kill isn't there no one he doesn't want to kill is there whatever the only people there are the people i want to kill so he chose a non-busy time of day quote collateral damage is not cool he's trying to put on this fucking show for these guys in the interrogation yeah yeah (laughs) collateral damage is not cool oh my god like yeah so he tells scott and brian he wants to buy a bike chris the mechanic takes the bike um, to go like do some work on it yeah brian and scott start doing the paperwork todd follows chris the mechanic to the garage and shoots him twice in the chest todd then heads towards the front of the store while beverly scott and brian come around to see what just happened mm-hmm. they're all standing in front of him and he shoots beverly mm-hmm. and brian and scott run for the door mm-hmm. he shoots them down in the back uh he goes to each body and shoots them all in the forehead and he tells the police this and this detail was not released to the media the forehead one the forehead thing yeah um and they also find his name was in the store's database as a customer he says quote i cleared that building in 30 seconds i'm sorry but you guys would have been proud (laughs) you fucking loser you are really like pathetic and weird i cleared that building you want to impress these guys the language even i cleared the building you guys would have been proud you know you know our lingo you guys think i'm hot would you fuck me (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) that's what i'm asking here 
Um, he was charged with four counts of murder in relation to the Chesney shootings and one count of kidnapping in relation to Calla Brown's abduction. He was later charged with three additional counts of murder for the murders of Charlie Carver and the Coxies, along with one additional count of kidnapping and three counts of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. Relatives of the motorbike shooting victims filed a wrongful death lawsuit against him. And on December 1st, 2017, it was also announced that Kala filed a civil suit against him. Mm -hmm. On May 26, 2017, Todd pleaded guilty to seven counts of murder, two counts of kidnapping, and one count of criminal sexual assault, and was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole in a plea bargain that spared him from capital punishment. At the um the hearing, Scott Jr., little Scotty, mm-hmm. um, said, quote, I'm always going to wonder what it would have been like if my dad was here. Although his defense attorney swore at his sentencing that there were no other victims to be found, Todd has since repeatedly admitted there were at least two other murders. I don't know if I believe him. Mm-hmm. But as of August 2018, he had not given any more details to the authorities, and he is currently imprisoned at the Lieber Correctional Institution. But wow, holy shit, right? Wow, holy shit. Wow, fuck balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whoa, dude. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, girlies, feel free to absorb the information. Um our it cut out our our batteries ran out our battery died we were um bidding you all adieu so did that end abruptly to you did that feel abrupt to you did you hear adieu i don't remember so adieu i'll say it now goodbye